The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. We apologize for the long break, but this is Talking Space Podcast episode 237 for the week of November 8th, 2010. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me, as always, is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. It may have been a long break, but we were working our tails off, I'll tell you. <laughs> You're not kidding, that's for sure. Welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Hi, Sawyer, and just in case anybody starts to worry as we go through our uh, show tonight, we're going to start, and I promise we'll end on a high point. Does that mean that we're actually going to launch? There, no, nah, there's just some roller coaster effects in between. Okay, we'll live with that. Now, Gino will be back with us next week to share some exciting information, but for now, this week we have with us Craftlast. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Always glad to have you with us. So it has been a big week, two weeks since uh, we've been on the air with you guys. And let's get caught up with one really big mission of NASA's. And let's just say it makes me want to go to the circus. Why? Because NASA's epoxy mission took a look at Comet Hartley 2, the closest encounter that has occurred to this point. And it kind of looks, as they described it, like a peanut with jets. Am I right? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, the uh, the interesting thing that uh, we we seem to be discovering here is cometary nuclei. When we go ahead and take a look at them, are very different. They're almost almost like uh, uh, fingerprints, if you will. Um, every seems like every every comet we've 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 looked at uh, the nucleus. It's it's extraordinarily different from from uh, from any other. So uh, I'm sure. Uh, um, Deep Impact still has a couple more surprises up its sleeve when we go ahead and analyze all the data. Um, I should mention that the name Epoxy is sort of a combination of names. Um, the the, uh, <coughs> the uh, part of it comes from the uh, Extrasolar Planet Observation and Characterization, or Epoch mission, um, and the flyby from uh, of Comet Hartley 2 called Deep Impact Extended Investigation, or Dixie, so thus the name Epoxy. Um, the, uh, the spacecraft, however, still is called Deep Impact, and, um, that, that baby was launched, I believe, in 2005, correct me if I'm wrong, um, and it, uh, fired an impactor into, uh, Comet Temple 1. Uh, the interesting thing about this flight was that, uh, uh we are sort of using, or NASA is still, you are sort of using assets that it already has, at its disposal out there to go ahead and do different things that maybe the spacecraft wasn't really designed to do 
but it's still sort of extending the life of the spacecraft. And I think that's a that's a great cost saving measure. So, um, you know, Deep Impact, I believe this is this is the third time they've used it for 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 some sort of mission. And uh, this isn't the only spacecraft that they're going to be using uh, in this manner. The uh, the Stardust uh, mothership, if you will, uh, will be uh, also leveraged, I believe, in February, on February 14th, Valentine's Day um, of next year, to take a look at uh, Comet Temple 1 again and take a look at the uh, the impactor site where the uh, the deep impact uh, impactor went into. So uh, they've got some pretty pretty exciting stuff coming up. And again, they're leveraging assets that are already out there. So it's not really costing us anything, you know, more to go ahead and build spacecraft. So this is kind of a neat uh, neat deal. You know, talk about more bang for your buck as far as the taxpayers are concerned. Nothing says love like a comet flyby, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, what we. The possibility of what we could get from this is amazing. Now, one thing that's really interesting is that they're kind of hiding out a little bit with the information because we only saw the medium resolution images, which are still beautiful. They haven't released the high resolution images yet because I found out the reason. You know why? Talk to me. Scientists are selfish. They want to take it and analyze it themselves. They don't want to reveal anything yet to the rest of the world until they can take the time to analyze it. So those images are still yet to be seen, and I could just imagine how stunning those are if the medium-resolution ones that we see are as beautiful as they are. Yeah, I thought that the, the engineers did a very interesting little little thing with this. You know, the, again, you know, being inventive using assets that you already have. They, In order to get the data over here, they had to basically point the spacecraft over at, at uh, Hartley 2 and then sort of like spinning around, you know, spinning around back to Earth and point it back at Hartley 2 and spinning around back at Earth to go ahead and um, uh, send the data over. They called the, you know, oddly enough, they called the maneuver the do si But that's exactly, <laughs> yeah, I'm not joking. Um, this That's coming from, uh, from uh, uh, JPL uh, Public Affairs. Um, they were they were pointing the spacecraft at Hartley 2, you know, and then, then turning it around and pointing the antennas back at Earth to send send the data back over, and then pointing it back at at, at the at the comet to get more information, and then turning the spacecraft around. So it, it was it was kind of an interesting interesting uh, solution to the problem, but uh, it, it all worked. And uh, again, we got some great science out of it. So I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to seeing those high res pictures. Sorry, I really, I really am. Me too. All right, let's move on to the... Oh, no, wait, we can't. We just encountered a delay. We can't move on. (laughs) You are bad. I'm sorry. It's been so long. I had to do something. Because break out the cheese knives, he's back. Anyway. Over this past week, on November 1st, was supposed to be the launch of the Space Shuttle Discovery. Unfortunately, that didn't happen because they were looking at something going on with the right Ohm's orbital maneuvering systems engine. Then they took an extra day to fix it because they were supposed to launch again on November 2nd, but scrubbed due to that. Then on Wednesday, that was also, take a guess, you got it, it was also scrubbed, except this time it was to evaluate some irregular electrical readings coming from engine number three. 
So they finally got all that fixed, and uh, they launched, right? Eh, wrong. <laughs> they had to delay because of weather. So from there, launch was scheduled for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and they finally decided, let's do it Friday. And it went Friday, right? No, it did not. They had to delay the launch once again for two reasons. The first main reason in which they actually scrubbed the launch for was because of a hydrogen leak, a gaseous hydrogen leak on the GUP, or the ground umbilical carrier plate, which basically what it does is it takes the excess hydrogen that comes out of the tank and moves it safely away from the shuttle to be burned. Now, there was a high leak, and this was higher than any leak they'd seen before and earlier in the count than they'd ever seen before, because this did happen on STS-119 and the six-delayed STS-127. Now, on top of that, they figured it shouldn't be too bad. They could figure out what it is and hopefully get it off by Monday. But then they realized that there was a crack on the external fuel tank. That crack was originally at 7 inches when they first saw it. It is now at about 20 inches. So, is Discovery just plain stubborn? Or did the people at NASA who say it's a machine, are they correct? Well, you've got a whole bunch of technological challenges here. Um, that's really about it. I mean, when you're, this is still a highly sophisticated machine, um, and grant you, it is it is thirty years old, but uh, um, it is it is quite a uh, uh, it, it's still a quite quite a finicky machine, and it's still the most sophisticated thing that the human species has ever built. And when you still have something like that, there are bound to be problems, even even though it is about 30 years old and we still have an experience. Um, so, you know, again, stuff happens in spaceflight. This is this is business as usual. We'll go ahead and fix it. And to quote my, Mike Mike uh, Leinbach, they will go ahead and fly when they are ready to fly. Um, Hey, Mark. What and, you know, you can't forget that this is our workhorse of shuttles. She's flown the most missions. She's kind of an old lady now. Well, some of the stuff we're talking about, I don't think, think you know, all right, fine, the OMS pod issue related to the orbiter. Um, True. But um, the, uh, and then, of course, the, the uh, main engine controller related to the orbiter. But, um, you know, the, the uh, ground umbilical connector plate and now the, uh, um, the foam, uh, you know, the, this, this foam crack can't really relate it to the orbiter. Um, sure. you know, so, you know, again, she's, um, she may be an old lady, but uh, she's, just, uh, she's just giving us a, a little bit of a dramatic flair for her, her final flight, I think. Oh, that's working. Well, that's for sure. A lot of people have mentioned how it's mirroring uh, her first mission. Yeah, exactly. She's just reliving the past. <laughs> Mark, you've been down at uh, uh, KSC covering the launch for us, and I thank you for that. Um, what can you go ahead and tell us about the crew of SDS-133? Oh, they're flexible. Uh, one of the press conferences that I was at, I think somebody asked that question about what the crew was doing with these changes in schedule and scrubs and whatnot. And the answer that came back was, well, they're enjoying some additional free time to talk with their families. And uh, they're also getting in some additional training. The training is light because they're really ready to go. But uh, 
Eric Bowe and Steve Lindsay are getting a little more time in the in the you know doing practice approaches and landings in the shuttle training aircraft, and so uh, they're they're making the most of it. They're making the best of it. They're ready, and I think they're even readier. Of course, now we know they'll have even more time to prepare. You kind of had uh, we have an interesting clip that you did, Mark, from uh, uh, the uh, the countdown uh, termination test there, uh, TCDT. Um, with the crew sort of introducing themselves. Uh, Sorry, why don't we just go ahead and run that right now? I'm the commander of the mission, and uh, what I would like to do is just kind of pass it down to each crew member and let each one uh, talk a little bit about uh, uh, what they're going to be doing on their flight, a little bit about their background. And so first thing, I'm going to hand it over to Eric Bowe, who's a pilot on the flight. Thanks, Steve. Good morning. Uh, Name's Eric Bowe. I'm the pilot uh, from Atlanta, Georgia, Uh, background Air Force test pilot. On the mission, I'm going to be working as a pilot. I'll be working with Steve on all the piloting tasks for ascent, entry, rendezvous, and docking. Looking forward to do the undocking and fly around. Also be working with Alvin and Steve on the uh, shuttle robotic arm and also the uh, PMM outfitting once we have it berthed to the uh, station. I'm Alvin Drew, and I'll be working as Mission Specialist 1, uh, working on the flight deck for ascent for the mission, uh, then working along with um, Tim Copra as our two spacewalkers doing the two EVAs during the mission as well. As Eric mentioned, Steve, Eric, and I will be working the shuttle robotic arm uh, for inspections and helping off with the handoff of uh, ELC-4 uh, to the space station's robotic arm for installation. My name is Tim Copra, and I'm a mission specialist, too. I'll be working on the flight deck for ascent and entry. And then uh, on flight days 5 and 7, be working with Alvin Drew for our two spacewalks. Be uh, also operating the robotic arm with Mike and Nicole on, uh, on some of the, the mission uh, components to install to the payloads, and uh, we're looking forward to it. going to pass it off to Mike Barrett. Uh, I'll be on the mid-deck as uh, one of the mission specialists. I'll be working rendezvous and uh, a lot of robotics. I'll get to spend uh, four uh, fractions of four days in the cupola working that uh, magnificent uh, station robotic arm, two of which I'll be flying Tim around on the arm, as you mentioned. I'm really looking forward to that. And uh, working also as loadmaster to get things transferred to and from the station. It'll be great to get back there. Good morning, everybody. Nicole Stott, uh, also one of the mission specialists. Uh, really happy to be here. Uh, my primary background is, uh, and I think that has helped prepare me the most for uh, flying in space, is the time I had here at Kennedy Space Center and Shuttle Operations. Uh, had the opportunity to work here for about 10 years. Um, on this flight, uh, Discovery, which I'm really excited to be flying on again, uh, I'll be working with Mike uh, for getting the, the vehicle ready after we uh, get to orbit and uh, then working some of the docking system activities for rendezvous and docking. And then with uh, Tim and Al, I'll be, uh, I get to be the boss of them from the inside while they're uh, outside doing their EVAs, so uh, they have to listen to me for that. And then, uh, like these guys mentioned, we'll be doing some of the, the major robotics activities, moving the uh, uh, ELC-4 from the payload bay. So really looking forward to it, and thanks for coming out. Okay, the, the, the interesting thing I got there was uh, that um, one of the crew was actually part of Discovery's uh, flow team at one point, correct? Yes, uh, I think Nicole Stott was part yep. of the, um, I'm losing the right term for it now, what the uh, convoy uh, leader, the convoy, um, oh, convoy operation when the shuttle would land she was she was at nasa for 10 years i think prior to um 
being accepted in the astronaut corps. Yeah, the the other interesting thing too is, if I recall exactly, and, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, uh, Mike Barrett and Nicole Stott learned that they were going to be on. Uh, this particular flight, SGS-133, while they were serving on orbit on the ISS. I think that was the first time that it ever happened. Um, also, Steve Lindsay, uh, the commander of the flight, uh, gave up his position at, as uh, chief of the astronaut office, gave that up to, uh, to turn it over to Peggy Whitson just to be on this, on this particular crew. So uh, uh, some really interesting stuff going on over there. So why don't we go into a little bit of the uh, the STS-133 mission itself, what it's all about, what it's going to be doing. Uh, Mark, again, you were kind of sort of on site over there, so you might want to go ahead and lead off with uh, with some of the manifest stuff there. Well, they got some good payloads going up, something that will be missed in years to come. Uh, the ELC, is it uh, 5? And the, of course, Robonaut 2 that's part of that payload and the multi-purpose logistics module or the I guess now it's called the permanent multi-purpose module PMM yes sir yes sir I'm getting tied up in acronyms can't figure out why <laughs> living, with, living with acronyms for a week that's what, that's what happens to you but uh, yeah the, uh, the the PMM it was a former uh, multi-purpose logistics module or MPLM um, this particular one, uh, Leonardo, I should mention, too, that the, all of the, uh, the three MPLMs uh, were designed over in Italy and uh, were named uh, by Italian schoolchildren for, uh, you guessed it, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, I believe it's Raffaello, Donatello, and, and uh, Leonardo. And uh, Leonardo, uh, after she got back from her, her, her last trip, uh, was uh, reinforced uh, for a permanent stay, and now is going to be uh, a, uh, a permanent part of the, uh, the International Space Station after Discovery leaves her off. Oh, just a comment about the other two. A question was asked at one of the press conferences, uh, what about the other logistics modules? And they said, well, they have a long lifetime in storage, and uh, there were no plans for them to be used, but they could be converted and uh, if there was a, a way to launch them to the ISS, they could be used in the future for additional uh, cargo up and storage on the uh, ISS. And again, there's no plan for that, but the capability exists, and they see no uh, no reason that they couldn't be used, uh, kept in pristine condition as they will be on the ground. Wow. Um, I think I recall hearing that question, Mark, and, and the... Um uh, I think the follow-up was was that how how you were going to get them there, and I think they were just going to simply use the infamous you know big dumb booster to get them there, but there wasn't exactly too sure which one that would be, um, whether it would be uh, anything that's currently in the uh, in the stable or you know something like Falcon Nine or something that just hasn't been uh, been even dreamt up just yet. So we'll we'll have to stay tuned, boys, mm, boys and girls. We'll have to just see how all this works out. So. There is a seventh crew member that really we just, you know, sort of scratched the surface with, um, with uh, with Robonaut Two. What can I'll, I'll I'll throw this out to anybody. What can when, what can you folks tell us about that? Well, I was lucky enough in one of the press conferences to sit right next to where he was being demonstrated for us, and he's 
well, I should say this is Robonaut 2A, who is staying on Earth, and they're going to use the A Robonaut to test procedures and, you know, use it, use it for troubleshooting, much like they use the Mars rover that is still at JPL for practice and figuring out how to solve any problems. And this, this is the most incredible thing I have ever seen. It's a humanoid robot that has such capability. He, he's gentle. He's soft-skinned. He's designed to never hurt a crew member, even if they get in the way when they're working together. And it's unbelievable. They showed a demonstration of him lifting a blanket very delicately and picking up an envelope that was fragile and handing it to a, you know, fake crew member, a man who was doing the demonstration, all very, very gently. But then they showed him weightlifting with some heavy weights, and they even showed a human lifting the same weights and running through the same machi- same routine. And they said that Robonaut is not as strong as a well-built man, but he can keep going forever. And that's the advantage. There's no fatigue. And it, it's an amazing robot. It's not metal. It's soft-skinned. It's like nothing I've ever seen before. And it's also a vast improvement over Robonaut 1. And since it was an earthbound Robonaut, we could actually touch it, which was an incredible sensation. It actually kind of felt like skin. Yeah, what do you mean by soft-skinned? Well, most robots are metal, and they're designed to serve one or two purposes. Um, Because he has a soft... I can't remember what exactly it's made out of. They tried to explain, but I don't remember exactly the description. I would have to look at that again. But it's like a soft skin. It feels not that different from our skin. Soft yet strong. And it has like some give to it. Wow. And shaking hands with, shaking hands with him feels like shaking hands with a person. Wow. So, um, gang, what's the game plan for Robonaut 2? Is this sort of just a, um, a test here, or is, is, or is this something that's going to be expanded on station, or, or, or what? They, uh, I think it will still, they'll start by testing him, of course, but he's intended to be a crew member, essentially. So, so this thing... Uh, I like this one. <laughs> so I'm, I'm guessing that the... Uh, uh, the the hope for Robonaut 2 is that it would first, you know, go ahead and do just kind of sort of the repetitive tasks on the station, repetitive maintenance tasks, and that would free up the uh, the crew on the station to really do the science? Yes, that yeah. seems to be the intention. And um, they, also, they also expect the crew is going to provide a lot of the input to define what tasks Robonaut would be good at. Uh, you know, they've got ideas on the ground as to what Robonaut can can do, what he can help with. But the crew is going to, as they as they test and and work on uh, on utilizing him, they're going to be coming up with suggestions. So that's the creative aspect. The the uh, the you know last minute, uh, hey, let's try this. You know, can we can we work this into his routines? 
is is it possible for this thing to go out and uh, uh, eventually uh, help uh, a crew, say, on an EVA outside the outside the station? Yes. So that that's yes. the end game. That's the intention. Yes, and they they want him to basically be a helper for tasks like EVAs, and he's extremely multi-purpose. They can program him to do almost anything that a person could do. Like I said, he's not quite as strong as a robot human, but he can do repetitive tasks almost endlessly, and he can easily be programmed to do tasks that they haven't even imagined yet. Sounds sounds like this is going to be one heck of a flexible platform if it works the way um, the way uh, uh, it, it should. Um, I should mention too that uh, this you know Robonaut two being a test bed. Um, cast, uh, guys, forgive me if I'm wrong here. We're, we're only talking about the upper half of the human body right now. The whole thing isn't flying up. There's it doesn't have any uh, legs or uh, or torso or anything like that. It's just the upper half, the arms and the uh, the head and 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 the main yeah. body. Correct. It does have a torso. It's okay. basically at the waist. Okay, so uh, so eventually those parts will be flown up at some other period of time, and they'll be adding that together, and and they'll just go ahead and, and test to see what this thing can really do. Is that is is that the hope? Yes, and also they don't know how exactly he'll behave in microgravity. So that's a big part of the test because obviously he's only been used on Earth. That could be a problem. Yeah, it could be. Uh, <laughs> The, um, I'm wondering too. I mean, this this alludes right back to uh, something we had discussed earlier on, on another show. But uh, there's a project running around called Project M that is not really funded or anything like that. But it's it, it's it's a rather ambitious project uh, using, I guess, a, a Robonaut two type robot that would go ahead and and fly to the moon. And they're hoping to do that once it's fully funded in about a thousand days from development to, to launch. Um, um, if, if they get that working as a test bed, I'm wondering too um, if uh, um, this thing can go elsewhere other than the lunar surface. If this thing actually does work the way it wants wants to. I think that's a long term goal of this whole program. I mean, this is the most advanced robot ever created. Wow. So um, we were talking a little bit about it helping on uh, EVAs. That might be a, be a pretty good segment to go further. Uh, there are two EVAs planned for this flight, aren't there, Mark? Correct. And uh, the two EVA participants, they described a little bit of what they're going to be doing at the TCDT. Okay. So uh, why don't we go ahead and roll that now, uh, the explanation. Um, I believe we're going to hear from uh, Tim Coper first. And then uh, Alvin Drew, who will go ahead and describe uh, the EVA. I think, uh, Mark, uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, Tim Coper will talk about his his contribution to EVA 1, and Alvin Drew will be talking about EVA 2. So why don't we roll that? That sounds great. I'll I'll talk about uh, EVA 1. So uh, it's interesting how this all evolved. We started out with an eight-day mission. It was going to be a long weekend on Space Station. And uh, then it evolved into two pretty uh, demanding spacewalks and uh, really excited about it, especially because it's so integrated with robotics. So the, the first EVA, as, uh, as many of you know, the, the stage crew, the, uh, the folks on space station replaced a pump module when it broke and did a great job. 
doing that, and they left the uh, the uh, disabled pump module installed on a place on station that's not great for bringing it back home. So Mike is going to fly me up to that location, and we'll install that back on a place on Space Station where they can pull that off and put it in the payload bay on a future uh, shuttle flight. So uh, while I'm doing that, Al's going to be working with venting this pump module because uh, since this module has some residual ammonia inside the tank, we need to get rid of that to put it in the payload bay on a future mission. So we'll be working with that, and Al's going to get that all set up. And then uh, after do that, that coordinated activity, Al and I are going to go out to the starboard side of Space Station and install a wedge that allows this, uh, this boom to be in a position that allows uh, future vehicles to come up and that won't be in the way for, for those missions. And then finally, the, the big task we have is installing this, this extension on the rail, on the, uh, the truss elements, and that allows the, the mobile transporter to move the entire length of the vehicle for future maintenance activities. So that, in a nutshell, is what we plan on doing on EVA-1. For EVA-2, uh, what we'll do is that we're going to set up for venting that pump module during EVA-1. The first thing we'll do after getting out the door on EVA-2 is actually vent that uh, module, allow uh, it to clean up so we can get it cleaned up later on in the mission itself. Uh, while that's going on, Tim's going to head out to the outboard side of the Columbus module and uh, retrieve the uh, uh, LWAPA, LWAPA payload that's been out there for a while. They need to get that back. Uh, he'll get to ride the robot arm out to the payload bay and install that and then come back and clean up from there. Uh, Tim will do further uh, work on the uh, uh, special purpose dexterous manipulator, uh, putting, uh, working with the camera stanchions and putting lens covers on it. And uh, meantime, I'll be out working uh, on the, uh, the ELC-4, which goes in. We've got a thermal cover that needs to be removed, so I'll get that back off of that and, and bag it up. I'll continue to clean up from the uh, stage EVA that uh, Doug Wheelock and Tracy Caldwell-Dyson did. They left some uh, bags out there on the front part of the uh, mobile service system. I'll get those bagged up as well and uh, get ready to bring those back. Uh, finally, I'll head over to the uh, starboard side and install a, a work light. It's called a CETA light uh, to, to light up the interior of the truss for internal maintenance. And then we'll get rid of some of the uh, um, insulation that's out on the outside of node 3. Um, then we'll, Tim and I will we'll tag back up uh, towards the end of the mission there and, uh, and get ready to head back in. Oh, and last but not least, of course, we have a Japanese payload. Uh, it's called Message in a Bottle. Uh, where we're going to capture some of the vacuum of space to bring back for the Japanese Space Agency. It sounds like, too, there, Mark, they're going to be doing some cleanup work uh, from uh, the summer's activities uh, when um, they had the emergency EVA to go ahead and fix uh, to repair that pump. Uh, so it looks like there's still a little cleanup work left, left over from that, I think. Yeah, there is. They uh, they described what they need to do to move that module to a point where hopefully on a future flight it can be brought down, and that'll give them an opportunity, I think, to do some uh, troubleshooting analysis to find out what caused the problem with that ammonia pump assembly in the first place. That yeah, coolant exactly. pump. Yeah, exactly. Um, so why don't we go on to the the week's activities here? Um, we uh, we had a and an interesting, uh, interesting week. First, uh, I should preface this: we were supposed to be uh, doing a, a live broadcast from uh, from the Kennedy Space Center, where, where Mark was going to going to anchor that. That uh, that still may happen. Um, we're we're kind of sort of still in a discussion phase with that right now, and we will go ahead and, and let everybody know what uh, what our final decision is with reference to that. 
Um, but uh, we had a pretty full week there, Mark. Why don't you? You know, we first had the uh, uh, the Ohms issue, uh, the Ohms pod, which I think was the right Ohms pod, boys and uh, boys and girls. Forgive me if I'm wrong on that. Uh, with the quick disconnect line, uh, that was the first little little gremlin that uh, kind of ruined our uh, ruined our week and ruined uh, November first. By the way, you're correct. It was the right Ohms engine. Thank you. Yeah, um, but. Um, Craftless, there. You you attended the the tweet up along with 150 lucky other participants out of 3,000 people that uh, 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 applied. I should say that this this tweet up was uh, was uh, occurring over at the Kennedy Space Center, and it was to go ahead and show 150 lucky folks what the Kennedy Space Center does well, which is uh, uh, take care of spacecraft and make sure they're ready for flight. Um, you had a chance to take a look at that little quick, quick disconnect. Uh, yes. In uh, fact, so. um, as Bill Gersenmeyer was walking by our table, he handed it over, he handed not the same one, but he handed one over to the people at my table and we passed it around. And it was amazing to see this tiny little piece of equipment about six inches around, which is what was causing all these large problems. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's just, it's like space flight or, or even uh, auto racing. A, a 50 cent part can ruin your whole day. Um, I guess the old adage, that old adage uh, applies here too. So that, that basically was our, is our, uh, our gremlin for, uh, for the first. And then, uh, Mark, we had a little issue um, with the uh, uh, main engine controller on uh, space shuttle main engine number three. On Discovery, correct? And uh, uh, the, the main engine controller is essentially the brain for the engine, if I'm not not mistaken. There are two of them. Right. Each each main engine has a, uh, a primary and a backup engine controller. And it's funny. The morning that uh, they had seen this this uh, problem or this this power up difficulty, um, you know, I asked the question, "Well, where?" Where is the switch? Because for somehow I had lost track of what was where. And they said it's a, a switch on board the orbiter. And uh, they said it powered up. And we're going to leave it there through launch. So we don't anticipate any further trouble. And then later that morning the story changed. Because they saw some additional uh, voltage sags or drops that uh, concerned them. And that's what resulted in a 24-hour delay at that point to start the countdown. And uh, gave them time to look at it further. <laughs> You had a very interesting question to ask uh, Mr. Mike Moses during the, uh, the uh, uh, I guess the uh, uh, hold the, the the press briefing there. Um, why don't we run that uh, that clip right now? In the back, please. Mark Ratterman from Talking Space for Mike Moses. Is the problem that you're describing and looking at historical data is that something that's easy, difficult? Is it something you have? tools to do or does it require recall from individuals on the team? No, it's and Mike can talk to the process. It's actually very easy to do. In fact, by the time we hit the MMT, I think they had finished reviewing this flow's worth of data every time that circuit breaker's been cycled, and I think they've been in the one or two flows before that. The main engine guys are already five or six flights back in history looking at, at their problems. Um, the, the, we call it, the, it's a PRACA database, which is a problem reporting and accounting, and I don't remember what the last A is. Corrective action. Corrective action, thank you. Um, that database is an easily searchable tool. We're able to put in uh, circuit breaker part numbers, main engine controller part numbers, and it'll flag every instance of a problem that affected those, and they can be screened pretty quickly. Um, the teams have done that 
via that we've we've learned that on on STS 90, and I forget exactly when in the count, but uh, the the problem that we saw initially where we we throw the switch and one of the phases doesn't come on uh, happened in that flow, and it wasn't in a, in a condition that was known then. Um, and the failure analysis that went along with that, we're able to look at and, and build on. And then, uh, and I forget which flight it was too, but the uh, uh, the potential of this voltage drop off has happened before. Uh, at that time, it was it was correlated to an actual brush where they bumped the circuit breaker. That circuit breaker being bumped momentarily made it hiccup, which then induced this scenario. So again, we have a very good physics-based understanding that the circuit breaker can cause these problems, but but let's make sure we've got all those ducks in a row. So to answer your question of how hard it is, it's actually pretty easy. The hard part is it's a lot of data, and there's a lot to talk about. And that's kind of what I mean. I think the answers were all there today, but we hadn't yet had a time to, to pull it together and organize it and make sure it, it, it does flow end to end. I thought that was a kind of interesting question because that was something, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, I was thinking myself as far as, as far as the electronics on this thing, uh, what it was really all about and what you know what kind of testing they, they had done previously with it. If I'm not mistaken, more correct. Yeah, and one of the things that uh, caught my attention was how in the world do you keep track of all of the flights and of all of the little things that pop up, either in testing on the ground, in post-flight examination of systems? How do you keep track of all that? So I was very interested in, in what they had to explain to us. Yeah, and, and I believe later on, uh, I don't think it was at this press conference, but there was another one. Uh, I think it was the, I think it was the post scrub press conference on Friday that we learned there was an actual database where all of these problems have been kept since STS one, if I'm not mistaken, and they could just go into this database and look it up and go, hey, wow, okay, that's what they did back then. Maybe this, maybe the same solution would work here. So yeah, and it's open to anybody in the public that wants to look at it too. Yeah, so um, I, I forget the name of it, Sawyer, but I'll, I'll I could find out. I'm, it's an acronym. I, yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. It's an acronym. Okay. It's, it's slipping me too, and I was watching it with you. Yeah, I, I was too, and I should I should have taken a note, and I didn't. It's got um, the letter. It's got the letter P in it. That's as close as I can get you, though. Yeah, I'm sure somebody yeah. somebody's going to write us and let us know. All right, we're getting there though. It's a yep. start. Um, so okay, the the idea on when was was to shoot for for Thursday, um, and that was not exactly the preferable day. Of, you know, we we basically drowned. It was raining like like you know, cats and dogs. Okay. Oh, oh yeah. It's a rain. <laughs> yeah, you you were there, so. <laughs> yes. Uh, it, it was. Um, it, it, it rained all day. It was not your usual Florida rain that lasts for five minutes. Yeah. So we, we basically got skunked uh, on Thursday. Mother Nature bit us. Um, and then uh, the, the big one of the worries for Friday, uh, weather-wise, uh, if I re my memory serves, was uh, uh, there was a possibility that the upper-level winds around uh, the Cape might prevent... Um, uh, launch because uh, you know you've got all those you've got this you know all those upper wind currents and they may buffet the orbiter or even worse in the event of having to do a, uh, a return to launch site or RTLS maneuver um, the orbiter could uh, you know you might not be able to go ahead and, and do that maneuver where the orbiter would have to you know basically detach from the, the external tank and 
and then uh, make its way over to the uh, the shuttle landing facility. Um, Mark, you you had uh, had the honor of at uh, TCDT um, uh, listening to a rather elegant description of of what a what a return to launch site maneuver is really really all about. Correct. Yeah, and I got to be honest. Uh, you know, it's another one of those terms that I just heard, and it kind of went in one ear and out the other. It, it just struck me as being, oh, okay, that's a maneuver where they go back. And uh, Steve Lindsay and Eric Bowe put a whole lot of meat on those bones to really impress me as to how uh, how dynamic it is. So why don't we go ahead and uh, run that little sound clip right now of uh, both uh, Eric Bowe and uh, uh, Steve Lindsay, uh, the pilot and uh, commander of STS-133, uh, describing uh, what a uh, what an RTLS is really, really all about. Well, it's obviously something we, we hope never to have to do. And just to kind of explain, an RTLS is that for some reason we normally what would get us into this, it's a return to launch site uh, profile. If for some, normally what would get you into this kind of scenario would be a loss of an engine, a main engine, we had the three main engines plus the solid rocket boosters. One of those main engines failed very early in flight. Uh, we'd, we'd be returning back to back here at uh, Kennedy Space Center. And basically the profile is a pretty interesting one. You kind of alluded to it. You basically fly up. And what we're trying to do is basically burn out all the fuel in the tank so that we can separate from it safely and then obviously be in a profile that we can come back and land the uh, space shuttle back here, the orbiter back at Kennedy Space Center. So there's definitely a lot of dynamic uh, phases of flight. It would be a, a pretty exciting ride, and like I said, hopefully it will be one that we don't have to do. But we, we're well trained in it. It's amazing the amount of detail that we've gone into to actually make it happen. Uh, there's some interesting parts of the flight as you're going away from this. You're actually pointing back towards the site, but flying backwards because we've already built up so much speed leaving the launch site. And then eventually our, our velocity turns around and we start flying back towards the launch site. Again, all the timing is working to get the external tank empty so that we can separate from it. And then we come back into land. Steve, you have anything to add? Yeah, I would. I would say the uh, the thing that's the most unique about it is, as Eric mentioned, was the um, was the part where you're where you're you're essentially flying backwards. Uh, you're you're well out of the atmosphere, so you're not really flying into your plume per se, but you're flying backwards. And as you slow, as your as your your relative velocity to the launch site gets slower and slower and slower. That you're continually dropping the whole time. You eventually reach a point which we call V-rel or relative velocity of zero, where you're actually dropping straight down at about, uh, what, yeah, almost a thousand feet per second. Um, uh, so you're dropping straight down, and then eventually you thrust out of this and you start climbing and climbing. And we usually hit about Mach six and a half or something like that, right when the uh, engines cut off with the tank empty, as Eric mentioned, because the most critical part of that is making sure we separate with an empty tank so that we don't recontact with the tank. Once you do that and you're off the tank successfully, then you kind of hit a standard profile coming in to enter and when you come in and land just like we would on a, uh, on a regular flight. So it's very dynamic. It's a certified flight mode, which means uh, the vehicle is certified to do this if we were ever to need to, and hopefully we never will. Essentially, you're heads down. As we go out over the water, we're heads down. And uh, in this RTLS, when, once we declare it, it, gets, it goes to – what it does is it's, we're still thrusting away – and, and the system is calculating how much fuel, at what, how much percentage of fuel remaining we should pitch back and start thrusting back. And once we hit that place, it's called powered pitch around. The vehicle actually pitches over the top. So now we're heads up, uh, heading back, even though we're flying backwards. That's how it works. That sounds like a piece of cake. <laughs> piece of cake. When I prepared that, that cut, I purposely left Bill Harwood's uh, comment in there going, ah, piece of cake. <laughs> 
uh, because it, it, it definitely is not a piece of cake maneuver, as we, we just heard. It's a very, very uh, um, uh, interesting, uh, to say the very least, maneuver, and it's one that I hope has, n- has never been made in the program, and I hope it never does. Uh, it's a it's a rather uh, uh, nail biting ride. Yeah, but imagine but if one they thing put... I learned last week. It's that these people have great sense of humor. <laughs> That's true. They do. How'd you like to have that added to the shuttle launch experience, Craft Class? <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> are outrageous with the amount of times i've written it now it'd be kind of nice to have anything added to it so all right so that was that was uh that was one of our weather worries for saturday i mean for saturday for friday excuse me and uh well uh friday didn't quite work out the way we wanted to did it uh our uh, a very interesting uh, and very very familiar uh uh, problem occurred uh, during tank during the tanking procedure, uh, filling the external the external tank up with uh, with uh, its its fuel. Um, the uh, ground yeah uh, Sawyer for go ahead tell, again uh, the uh, the GUP stands for it stands for the ground umbilical carrier plate. Thank you. I was I was getting tongue tied there. Thank you for coming to my rescue. Not a problem. Um, that bit us uh, during tanking, but the interesting thing, though, was that uh, it bit us in a in a, a a time area that it never bit us before. In, uh, if I remember exactly, the description was during STS one one nine and STS one twenty seven. It the, the that bit us when we were just topping the the fuel off. This time it, it bit us during uh, the fast fill process within in, into the external tank, and that, that, from what I understand, it had never happened before. So as soon as they saw that, they just stopped and said, uh, "Oh boy, we've got ourselves a situation here." And, and when I heard that, my heart sank because I knew we weren't going to fly that day. I just I just knew that that uh, that it was party over <laughs> at that point. Um, uh, Mark, you were. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, Craftless, you were down there. Um, what was the feeling through the tweet-up crowd that you were hanging hanging with throughout all of this, uh, um, all of these little little technological challenges that uh, that fate and Mother Nature kind of threw at us? Well, it was uh, it was it was different for different people. Some of us have been pretty obsessed with the space program for long enough to know that. This happens. It's space. That, that, a lot of us were walking around going, well, that's space. And then there were a lot of people a little less familiar, which was one of the great things about the tweet-up. There were a uh, few people who didn't know that much about the program, and they were uh, a lot more disappointed. A lot of people had even scheduled flights for Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, I personally had not bought a return ticket home because I knew I was going to be there till the end of the window, no matter what. And I will be there when Discovery takes her final flight. A lot of people learned a lot about the space program and from this experience in a very first-hand way that I think they'll take with them for the rest of their lives. 
So it was very educational. Um, of course, it was very disappointing as well. The first couple of delays we took in stride, we were on tenterhooks about whether we'd still get to go to the press site because the NASA employees who arranged all of this for us weren't sure if they could keep the tent, if they could keep our badges active. And that was pretty hard because, of course, we were all looking forward to seeing it from there. And then the last day, I actually have a great story of I was driving in with a couple of people who weren't as familiar with launches. And we, as we pulled into the press site, we saw the countdown clock counting down. It said three hours and 23 minutes and some seconds. And we got very excited to see it. And then we pulled into our parking spot and we took about 15 minutes loading all our stuff up to bring to the tent. And when we were walking over, it said plus seven minutes and 10 seconds. That was the moment I first saw it. And I immediately said, uh-oh, scrub. And the two people with me said, how do you know? And I said, look at the countdown clock. And then they started pulling the discovery flag down, which was kind of heartbreaking. And yet, again, that's space. It's, uh, yeah, unfortunately, that's, that's just the nature of the business. Uh, but the, these, these folks have a, have a tendency to... Uh, to go ahead and try to do the impossible whenever that they can. Uh, Mark, you had a very speaking of doing the impossible. <laughs> uh, Mark, that was your that was a question you put to Eric Bow, was it not during TCDT? Uh, yeah, and I just want to make a comment about the tweet up. Uh, I'm sort of envious not having had the uh, the good fortune of schedule to be around when any of the tweet up folks were out at the press site. But I'm envious because I think you've got the record, uh, Craft Lass, of being at the longest tweet up in history. <laughs> we started calling it Tweet Week. <laughs> <laughs> also, I, I, before we even go with that, uh, Mark, Mark, just real quick, uh, this particular tweet up group got in where no tweet up had gone before, uh, got into yes. the vehicle assembly building, which I am extraordinarily envious about. And you managed that. I have. I, I can't tell you how many tweets I got from people who had been to the previous two launch tweet-ups just going, I'm so jealous, I'm so jealous. And even my non-Space Geek tweets were writing to me saying, I'm so jealous. Can I say and, something to you? Yeah, sure. I'm so jealous. <laughs> well, you know what? I hate to say it, but you should be because it was incredible. We actually, what happened was um, our tweet-up got delayed by a day by the initial delay. And so our program that was supposed to be Sunday turned to Monday, and we got a full-day program. And when they went to load us up for the tour, there was a problem with the buses, and they could only take one bus load on the tour. So all of us who were staying stepped aside and let the other tweets, the ones who had to leave the next day, get on the bus, and they went to the what should have been closed Saturn Five Center, and they got the experience of being there with absolutely nobody else. It was they they, they ran all the programs and everything, so the troops could actually experience that. Um, and we were a little bit jealous at first that they got to do that. Well, turns out we were the lucky ones because the minute we got on our bus the next day, we they started handing out 
these special passes that said, like, NASA special guest. And we were told, you have to hand these back when we're done. But guess what, folks? We're taking you inside the VAB. And the screams on my bus, there were two buses, were deafening. I, I wish I could have caught it on tape, but it all happened too fast. They, and they probably would have broken the microphone. <laughs> we, we were so excited. And I figured, all of us figured, well, we'd get to like step inside the VIP, take a couple pictures, and leave. We actually were in there for, I, I'm not sure how long. It was so incredible that I truly do not know how long we were in there. It was, I, I had an, out, an almost out-of-body experience being in there. It's a building I've dreamed of going into, of course. And when we walked in, we went in in separate groups, so there wouldn't be too many of us at once. And the first thing we saw were the cones of the SOBs for 134, which were being stacked. And I, I, all of us were speaking in very hushed tones. And I commented to a friend, it, we, it's like we're in church. We're all speaking so quietly. And we'd just been so loud a few minutes ago. And she said to me, yes, it's a space cathedral which I thought was one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard, and it really was. The, the windows on either side with the American flag in the middle looked like stained glass, and it, it, was, inc- it was just incredibly beautiful. We were all looking up and just in utter shock to be there. It, and we got to walk around pretty freely for the time we were in there and just look at everything. The shuttle wall where all the shuttle workers had signed it, they had banners up from um, all the most recent missions, you know, the, the ones that hang on the crawler when they're, you know, rolling it out. And, and the ones that say um, go it, endeavor, go discovery, those? They say, uh, we're, we're, like, we're behind you, yes. discovery, we're behind you, endeavor, yeah. Those are hanging up on the wall. And they, uh, of course, there wasn't an orbiter in there. There wasn't a full stack, but we did see the tops of the SOBs that are beginning to be stacked. And we got to get a, some really good views of, you know, all the equipment that's used. And we were pretty much just in utter shock <laughs> to be in there the whole time. I think everybody really appreciated it. Even the people who... I, I was told... I talked to a NASA employee. She said, I've worked for NASA for 25 years, and I have high security clearances, and I've never gotten to go in there. And that really put it all in perspective. It it almost didn't matter that there wasn't a launch because we got to do something that almost nobody gets. So we're very grateful to everybody who made the decision to let us have that experience. Again, you guys are doing the impossible impossible there, too. so, Mark, speaking about doing the impossible, you, the, one of the final things we'll, we'll go ahead and look at. You asked uh, Eric Boa a very interesting question during uh, the TCDT presentation. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the question I ask him is something that just struck me as being uh, one of those things that is a part of uh, so much of training, so much of an individual mission, and not just for the astronauts, for the uh, NASA, the whole NASA family, uh, you know, it's something that I felt would apply to anyone young or old, no matter what age. And that was what, you know, all of those things combined brought that uh, to my mind. And I'm so thankful to have the opportunity to ask him. And I sort of felt like I knew what the answer was, but I think everybody will uh, 
really be impressed and appreciate the source and appreciate the experience of Eric Bo that, that took the challenge and answered this question for all of us. Open question for any of the crew. I'm Mark Ratterman from Talking Space. And my question is about how you do the impossible. If a friend or a neighbor, maybe a student in school or university, ask how to move beyond what seems difficult or impossible, from your experience and success, your education, training, what advice would you give? How do you do the impossible? That's, that's a really good question. You know, really, I think we don't look at this as the impossible because the way we've trained and everything else, and, and that's kind of the things out in life that look like impossible, you do them one step at a time. You know, you kind of set your goals, you kind of look at the big picture, see how things that you want to do, and then you just attack those problems day in and day out. And I think that's probably one of the hardest things is that every day you got to get up and do your best. And as you keep doing that, especially with a team, you kind of get the synergistic effect. You know, one person can do one thing, but, you know, when you have a whole group of people, I mean, every time we look at this amazing machine and you go, it's amazing that humans can build something like that, that we can take this ship up into space and make it happen. And so, to me, the thing that really makes that difference is that we have a whole group of people that are working together, that are trying to do these hard things, and then they're no longer hard. They're not impossible. They become easy. So, you know, for the people out there that are trying to do those things, you know, set your, your goals high and keep working hard, and you'll get there, and the impossible will be possible. Yeah, Mark, I thought that was that was really an elegant um, answer to a very interesting and very, uh, dare I say, a very elegant question. Uh, I, I was, I, I think you, you just have a knack of, of asking the right questions at the right time, and, and that was just just proof of that. So thanks, I and mean, that was a really unique uh, unique way to to end the uh, the TCDT. And it's something that you know is is part of what's going on now because you've got the the whole NASA team working together to uh, come up with the answer as to what the GUP problem is all about and what their options are to to troubleshoot and fix that. And that's what it takes. And we will see Discovery fly. Indeed, and we will fly when uh, when she's ready to fly. And, uh, They'll uh, they'll kick the gremlins out and uh, and Discovery will will go into uh, her swan song and uh, end her career with uh, with distinction and and uh, come back to us and take her rightful place wherever it might be. All right, and I believe we can end it right there. Is there more to it? Yes, but we're going to have to save that for another episode. So I'd like to thank everybody that joined us today. Thank you very much, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer. Um, it's been fun taking a look at uh, the week that was, and hopefully we'll get uh, Discovery off the ground. Did you say the week that was or the leak that was? <laughs> Thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. My pleasure. Good to, good to be together. Always, and thank you as well, Craftless. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be a guest on here. And Mark, if I can insert, thank you for all the hard work that you did for on our behalf. Uh, you were our press contact for the first time over at uh, at the Kennedy Space Center. So again, I appreciate all the hard work you, you did uh, did this week. My pleasure. We'll uh, we'll do it again soon. I hope. Yep. Once again, we apologize for the lack of episodes because we've been concentrating on our live launch coverage, which we are hoping to continue on November 30th, which is the no earlier than launch date of Discovery. So with that, I'd like to thank you for joining us and have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.